0: Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2022, we're running our annual Radiothon when we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy your podcast.
1: But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology—they're bad aliens. So, uh, are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the
2: Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the body. Bar-
3: and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it
2: up. Listen, I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol.
3: Welcome to Ye Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by journalist and author Elle Hardy, who has recently uh, published the book Beyond Belief, How Pentecostal Christianity is Taking Over the World. Thanks for joining us, Elle.
0: Thanks for having me.
3: I guess just to begin with, could you maybe give us a bit of an explainer about what is Pentecostal Christianity? and how does it differ from some of the other branches of Christianity that Alison's uh, might be familiar with, like evangelicism?
0: Sure. So it's a branch of evangelicism, which is also a branch of Protestantism. So the the best way to think about it is born again plus. So your typical evangelical uh, will accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior and, and be born again, often in like full water immersion baptism. A Pentecostal will do that, but then they'll, then they've got to be born again in the spirit as well. And this is what really defines Pentecostals is their belief in the Holy Spirit. So they'll be filled with the Holy Spirit and given the nine gifts that are prophesied in the Bible from the Holy Spirit. So it's things like uh, miracles, prophecy, healing, divination, and uh, most notably speaking in tongues, which is what Pentecostals are known for, although these days you're more kind of corporate churches like like Hillsong, they don't really focus on the speaking in tongues so much because it can put people off. But, but traditionally, that was what they were known for. It's where the name Holy Rollers comes from, from the original Pentecostals, when they would be filled with the Holy Spirit and so overcome, they'd drop to the floor and be rolling around and, and babbling and and yeah, almost in, in a trance-like state. So, so that's where Pentecostals come from and are most famous from For but uh, these days they they, a lot of them are looking much more like a highly corporatized hill song where it's just singing and and feel good.
3: So the the subtitle of the book is how Pentecostal Christianity is taking over the world, and that's because it's uh, you know the fastest growing religion. In
0: the world by by converts at least so um it, it's getting up there with birth rates too because it has a huge footprint in sub-saharan Africa and Latin America which are and Asia which are you know the really fast growing regions Hinduism and Islam by by birth rates have probably got a better claim, but Pentecostals are converting about thirty five thousand people a day so that is that is you guys are in Melbourne right I mean that's oof. About a third of the MCG, maybe a third to to forty percent. So it doesn't sound like all that much, but that's you know that that's probably at least you know more than the Melbourne Storm football stadium. Like that's a huge amount of people, and and where they're mostly converting is from it's a great secret of of religious people or not so secret. You don't you don't convert atheists. You convert people who already believe. So where they're really converting people is is Catholics in Latin America. So in Brazil, about 3% of the population in 1980 was Pentecostal. Now it's at least 30%. So, in 40 years, they've undone 500 years of uh, Catholic hegemony, which is which is pretty crazy. And, and Pope John Paul II, even in, I think, the 80s sort of saw the beginning of this and called the Pentecostals ravenous wolves because they were stealing their flock. So, so yeah, it's really rapidly converting people, message of health and wealth. It's the faith of the global poor. So, it's just absolutely exploding in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, parts of Asia and, and Latin America.
3: I feel like sort of sour grapes from the Pope, you know. You could you can be a sore loser, or you could put out a rock album and try and win some of these people back.
0: Yeah, well, in in Latin America, they've they've got what's called the Catholic Renewal Movement, the Catholic Charismatic Renewal Movement, and that's basically Pentecostalizing the Catholic Church because so many people were leaving, and so for all intents and purposes, a lot of Catholic churches within that movement basically just look, sound, feel like a Catholic uh, like a Pentecostal church, and so just on on numbers as well, so it's at least 25% of global Christians now, of 2 billion global Christians are, are Pentecostal. I reckon the number's a bit higher. And they reckon there's about 600 million Pentecostals worldwide. By 2050, there'll be a billion or one in 10 people. So uh, as, as much as I'm prone to hyperbole, it, like, it really is a rapidly going movement that I think has is, is really gone under the radar.
2: In terms of it being a I guess, uh, a doctrine that's becoming increasingly popular with the global poor and eating away at uh, Catholic populations. When I think about Pentecostalism, and as as I think you describe in the book, it's not closely associated with a progressive political program. It seems to, and yet it has this kind of, Appeal? How do you explain that? What does the what does Pentecostalism offer the poor?
0: Yeah, so, so the main reasons that people join a Pentecostal ch- a church is health and wealth. Um, it's kind of the crude way of explaining, but but basically, it's the huge parts of the world. It is the only the only healthcare game in town, and that's both by miracle and even just the the pragmatic thing that that when you join a church, often they'll have you know a small medical clinic on site. And this isn't just unique to Pentecostals, but, but Pentecostals are very good at digging in and being part of the community. And so they will have those basic services that, you know, in large parts of uh, South Africa, of, you know, Brazilian favelas, of, of Nigeria, you're just not getting that at all from the state. So there's just that very pragmatic thing. There's also childcare. Like young women are joining these churches often to, to get their lives together, to get their families' lives together, and it, it's – often a, a place where, you know, these are single mums or, or young families that are working several jobs to make ends meet or they're working, you know, really horrendous hours in poor conditions and their kids, when they're at work, you know, after school, their kids are just running around on the streets. You know, South Africa, there's 75% youth unemployment. And so it, it's not going to be great for your kids to be doing that, you know, while you're just just trying to make ends meet. So, you're part of a church you can send them to youth group you know they get soccer practice music practice things like that so it's becoming de facto childcare for a lot of people and that's why you really see about two-thirds of global pentecostals are women and young women at that and there's also just access to, to the miraculous people seem to enjoy that that really personalized uh, relationship with god the, the 60s charismatic what we call the second wave of pentecostalism they really kind of personalized the relationship it became jesus like first name basis not Jesus Christ anymore and and it became very he died for me so it's really speaking to some stuff in the individual culture that you know has really sprung up post world war 2 and then in terms of wealth sad to say that pentecostals are the probably the the the, the great believers and practitioners of prosperity gospel though so there is those you know kind of people getting overwhelmed and giving Title deeds to their their preacher and things like that, but but it's also much more than that. Um, so there's some pretty big evidence coming out of Brazil that that people do have a, a, a real upturn in the circumstances once they once they join a Pentecostal church because like they, they become accountability networks. You know, when when men tend to join them, it tends to be because they're getting off the drink and gambling and things like that. So it's you know you got people asking where you are on a Sunday morning, and like where else are we getting that in society? Do you know what I mean? These are real de facto communities that are building up, especially in big cities where people are moving for work. So like Lagos in Nigeria, like Seoul in South Korea, like Sao Paulo in Brazil, people are leaving their communities behind and feeling the strain of that. And these churches do become a way of of practicing perhaps some traditional culture and, and finding your community. Sometimes that can be by way of, of prosperity gospel, but you know, it's not, for me to tell a poor person in a favela, you know what they should be praying for. So, if that's their thing, that's that's fine. You know, that's fine with them. And and yeah, there, there's a, a real show that people in, in Brazil. There's real evidence that that people get their lives together a bit more once they once they enter these churches. But then there's also the incentive for churches and right wing leaders to get people to these churches. So when GDP falls, attendance at churches goes up almost the same amount. And so. You're really seeing leaders, very far radical right leaders like Trump, Bolsonaro, Duterte, or even Orban in Hungary. It's really fitting in with their right wing view of the world. And it's really saying, you know, pick yourself up by the bootstraps, go join your local church, find your community that way. Don't expect the state to give you these things. So we're seeing Pentecostals really become para-state institutions. And, you know, helping some people, but obviously co- causing a, a greater detriment to, to societies as a whole.
2: The other thing I think about in connection to, I guess, Pentecostalism, and I think what you refer to as doing the stuff, is it becomes a whole, I guess, way of life. There's a, there's an infrastructure, there's, there's church, there's all sorts of other uh, groupings associated with um, the religion, but also like a lot of razzle-dazzle. That's quite spectacular. Can you talk a little bit about the, the appeal of Pentecostalism as spectacle?
0: Yeah, so it it's so fascinating. Pentecostalism, uh, well, rock and roll as we know it, you know, like 50s America, that is essentially secular Pentecostalism. Anyone that was anyone in early rock and roll, from Sister a Tharp, you know, the the godmother of rock and roll, through to Elvis, Little Richard, all sorts of guys like that. They all grew up in Pentecostal churches or, or had a story like Elvis's where they were sneaking down the road to the local Pentecostal church for their music. And I think from the beginning, you know, it's, it started out at, in 1906 in Azusa Street, California with the the son of, of freed slaves from Louisiana. And, and from the beginning, it was always raucous. It was it, it was, you know, the people's faith. It, it didn't have you didn't have to be a lettered person to become a preacher. You just had to have a following. So it always had this very spontaneous nature to it, and, and that's really where it got going in in rock and roll. And right from the beginning, you know, they were just plugging the guitars in the amp and turning it up and and putting a real bent on gospel. And and because once it left California, it went to to the deep south. And uh, at first, it was black and white together, but. Segregation and everything sort of saw these two main churches split apart. So, Church of God in Christ was the black, you know, Pentecostal umbrella, and Assemblies of God was was the white one. But but they were still both practicing a lot of Southern music, and, and that became really meaningful to their worship. and And other churches tried to imitate it. And then in the sixties, in in that second wave that I mentioned earlier, that actually came out of the hippie movement. That that was literally from a guy who'd been at the Summer of Love in Hyde Ashbury and just looked around and went this is horrible. You know, all these people are are sort of practicing this quasi-religion, but you know, there's girls getting raped everywhere, you know, people taking these trips and sort of finding there's nothing there. It's being really corrupted by consumer culture. And he, this is Lonnie Frisbee, who's quite interestingly been written out of history because he came out of of Pentecostal history because he came out as gay or was was sort of outed as, as being gay. And so, yeah, he, you know, sort of went back down the South coast of California and and, and went back to church, and like a lot of young people did in California who, who saw the hippie movement and saw through it. And then so you got all these these guys in the 60s, like John Wimber who invented the term doing the stuff, you know. The devil used to let me do his stuff when I was in rock and roll. Now now I want to do God's stuff. He was a founding member of what would become the Righteous Brothers and actually became the Righteous Brothers' first manager. He teamed with, with various other hippies, even Bob Dylan at one point converted. So it's just so he's had this real... Spoken firstly, I think, to, to people who are of that world and who are musical and entertainers but also really come through that entertainment industry and and appeal to people. And then so by the 80s when you get Hillsong coming along who just happened to have all these great musicians in their congregation, they were able to find a new global audience that that wanted this stuff. And, you know, it's why people go to the church. It's why 50 million, con- 50 million people in congregations around the world are listening to Hillsong music every week. It's uplifting, it's empowering. They say that Pentecostal pre- preach for, for Monday, not for Sunday. So, they're, you know, it's not like Reverend Lovejoy in The Simpsons where everyone's just, you know, falling asleep. It's this really energetic uplifting where you're kind of dancing through it, getting together with your friends. And and it really seems like that's what people want in modern faith is something that's empowering and uplifting.
3: You're listening to 3CR, 855am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to El Hardy about Pentecostalism. Well, speaking of Hillsong, uh, the church in Australia has recently been going through some trials and tribulations. Uh, If our listeners aren't aware, could you sort of bring them up to date on what's been happening with with Hillsong and the Houston family?
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, it's not just in Australia. They're they're, they're really bleeding out in the US as well. Very quick history. So, uh, Brian Houston appeared in front of the Royal uh, Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse in 2018, I think it was. Uh, or was it 2014? Sorry, my memory's going a bit with my voice. And uh, his father, Frank, had been deceased. Father Frank had, had long been sort of outed for his child sexual abuse. Ryan Houston had been uh, accused of, of allegedly covering it up, that he knew about it earlier than he said. And charges have come against him now following his appearance at the Royal Commission. So he'll be appearing in a Sydney court in December to defend these charges, which he completely denies and, and says that he will defend vigorously. So, so that obviously caused a bit of a stir amongst the congregation. Then the, the famous celebrity preacher who was known for converting Justin Bieber, in 2020, he was outed for several affairs with women for creating a toxic culture for what Brian Houston wound up calling a narcissistic personality. He was fired from his position in late 2020. The church obviously took a bit of a hit uh, during COVID, as, as most religious institutions did, you know, when they had to, to shut down, and then so late last year, Brian Houston, um, on legal advice, was told to stand down as head of the church so that he could fight these charges at, at the end of this year. Then, in, in March, it was uh, leaked to the media that he was being investigated by the church for breaching code of conduct for two uh, transgressions with women in his congregation, and uh, and there was an investigation and a lot of politics going on internally, shall we say. Uh, five days later, on the 23rd of March, he resigned for for breaching the church's code of conduct. And uh, since then, there's there's been a lot of leaking internally. Um, there's a real political split. There's uh, people at very high levels in the church who've been around for 30, 40 years longer. Who've you know worked with his father Frank, who you know were considered a, a family, a very close knit family, who you know helped build this church up from from nothing. Who Know where a lot of bodies are buried, <laughs> so to speak, who are who are now turning on the Houstons uh, and the Houstons turning on them. So it's it's pretty it's pretty nasty. Houston's wife Bobby was also fired by text message, although the church denies that. Uh it looks like their youngest daughter has now been removed or stood down from her position as a youth pastor. So yeah, it's 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 pretty nasty. The Houstons are still Have some, they're not supposed to be going to churches, but they just went on a European holiday and visited a lot of, a lot of contacts in Europe, um, in, within the Hillsong network. Six, nine of the 16 US branches, uh, um, have split now from Hillsong. I believe the Norwegian branch is looking to do that now as well. So, and also, sorry, they've been dumped from their TV station. A lot of churches aren't playing their music, which is a huge hit because they get big royalties from it. So they're really um, in in massive trouble. Attendances are way down, um, and and I really think the the political fallout of everything that's happened over the last couple of years is is only really just getting started, and I think there'll be a lot more to come over the next couple of years.
3: So you mentioned there's been a lot of leaks. Uh, I thought I thought it was really interesting that uh, you know almost immediately after a big staff meeting the other day, it was a leak to Crikey. Uh, emails have been leaked to. You reported on leaked emails in the Saturday paper. So there's there's obviously a lot of you know, ructions happening at the top end, but do you have a sense of what the response to all of this has been amongst the rank and file?
0: Yeah, so I was out at the Hills uh, Campus, which is their headquarters in, in Western Sydney uh, last Sunday night, and it was about a third form. So there's about, I don't know, 1,000 to 1,500 people out in the auditorium. To put that in context, there used to be at least two services on a Sunday night where people would sometimes queue for an hour to get in and not always get a seat so you know we're looking at uh, and uh, and a similar thing going on in the morning so so we're looking at at least Sixfold, you know, sixfold reduction in in attendances at headquarters, and I know this is being replicated in other churches. So yeah, look, a lot of people have left. I think Hillsong has a convenient cover, you know, that they might be able to say this is because of COVID. But there's certainly been a lot of people left. There are people staying in the church. I've spoken to some people who are, you know, want to fight for the church that they don't believe it's the Houston's church. They believe it's Hillsong. They believe it's their community church. It was built on their free labor, on their love and their commitment, and their their money, their gifts of, of tithing, and and other things. And they want to reclaim the church from the Houston family, who they feel is toxic. And then there are some people who are just they they are, are very true believers in their faith, and they say, "Look, you know, we're all sinners. We're all imperfect people. We're worshipping a perfect God." They believe that everyone has the you know the right to be reborn. And and often these are, are people I find that have some distance with their worship in the Houston family. So they might be at Waterloo in the inner city or they might be in Cape Town in South Africa and, and they feel much more of a connection to their local pastor and their local church community. And, and they just feel a lot further imu- removed from from the Houston family and they believe that that their church and their community is on the right track. So, yeah, look, there's, there's, a, there's a range of responses, but I would say that overwhelmingly the, the main sponsor, response at the moment has been people walking with their feet just, just being embarrassed by, you know, people asking them why they're still going to Hillsong and, you know, that, that Hillsong has been so successful. It has a lot of imitators. You can go to a lot of Hillsong-style churches. Um, so, for some people, it's just just easier to walk out and, and just go to somewhere down the road or go to someone on YouTube or, you know, just join a Bible study or practice their faith in a different way.
3: One Pentecostal who was not especially removed from the Houston's in Australia was, of course, Scott Morrison. I was wondering, what did Scott Morrison's being prime minister mean for the Pentecostal brand more generally? It seems like it has to be a bit of a get to have a a global leader. And what does it mean now that the the miracle of 2019 hasn't been repeated?
0: Yeah, look, um, we think he might be the first Western Pentecostal leader in the world. To be honest, I I think the role of President Trump was far more significant. Pentecostals got behind him well before other evangelicals. People like Paula White Kane uh, was his spiritual advisor. The Pentecostals just got Trump from the beginning. It, there's something about the style, you know, being very off the cuff, populist, all those sorts of things. So so like when Trump moved the embassy, uh, US embassy to Jerusalem, that was such a big thing for the Pentecostals. They were really in on that stuff and people used to say, you know, well, how can you get behind someone like that, you know, that's divorced, that lives such an immoral life, that seems so removed from Christianity. And the general Pentecostal position was that we don't want him to be restrained by our morality, we want someone who's going to get stuff done for us, like moving the embassy. And, and I mean, Trump even gave a speech in front of a Jewish audience where he said, oh, the Christians liked this more than you guys did. So I think I think Trump was much more significant. If you've ever seen the photos where he had a prayer group in at the White House and they're all laying hands on him, they're almost all Pentecostal. But, but Scoma obviously, you know, was significant in Australia. I, I think, of, you know, his faith is quite alien in Australia. In, 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 and so a lot of ways, I think it helped rally the opposition against him that, you know, he, he's quite uncharismatic, quite unlikable. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people sort of started questioning his faith when they couldn't really square him as a as a leader with the miracle of 2019 and, and perhaps started to look at his faith. Uh, but certainly people around the world were, were, were looking at it. As for the movement in Australia, his Pentecostals in Australia, I mean, you walk into a Hillsong church and it's incredibly diverse. It would be 75% non-white. Mostly young people under twenty-five, so it's not really a natural liberal constituency. So, I'm not sure that he was really getting people walking in the door in in Australian churches in any particular way. It's they're much more joining for for sort of the reasons I talked about earlier, but certainly. I think it helped inspire perhaps some people in leadership positions and embolden. You know, there's, there was a flood of people. There's a network of churches that are Hillsong esque in South Australia, and there was a flood of applications to the Liberal Party there. They've been, they have a few preachers down there that are very, political and are encouraging people to take more of a role in public life. So, so I think we're seeing perhaps that way from a leadership inspiring level that Scott Morrison has been effective rather than from a layperson, you know, just getting people in the doors and practising the Pentecostal faith.
2: One thing that uh, Scott Morrison did that uh, seems to have uh, backfired was um, indicate support for the candidacy of uh, Catherine Deves in Sydney, partly on the basis of her strong statements about the uh, situation of trans uh, gender people in Australian society. What's the relationship between, I guess, if any, between his political and religious beliefs insofar as they're informed by Pentecostalism and Pentecostalism's teachings on questions of gender and, and sexuality?
0: Yeah, so I always find this uh, difficult to square Scott Morrison's Pentecostalism just because it's doesn't seem especially pronounced, especially compared to other people, you know, that have seen like Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. He went and got dunked in the Jordan River, you know, to kind of show his Pentecostalization The Jordan River in Israel during the the campaign. So uh, Scott Morrison has always been, I think, stood his faith back a little bit more. And it's really just, you know, imported culture wars where you've seen him be able to show off his faith and and I mean, I wondered the extent to which, you know, uh, Prime Minister Dutton wouldn't have just done the same thing. So I'm not sure how informed it is by his Pentecostalism, but there certainly is that edge there. I mean, I think it's really instructive. Brian Houston, he really tried to avoid coming out and saying anything um, before the, the same-sex marriage referendum, because they just don't want to turn their audience away again. Like I said, it's really young. Like the vast majority of their congregation in Australia seem to be under 25, so I just don't think, even if they're fairly conservative people, I just don't think that that level of hatred and and sort of public humiliation and picking on on people in the LGBT community is just really going to wash with these people. So, so I think it, yeah, he, his position was quite instructive, where he kind of came out with just a statement on his website when they had to do it, which they then took down, just saying, oh, you know, we believe that it's important for people to be civically engaged and vote with their hearts and. Obviously, we have our views that it should, uh, marriage should be between a man and a woman, but you know, people have just got to follow their hearts and follow what they believe in with God. So, so yeah, look, I think Scott Morrison's really, you know, t- taking a, a really pretty horrendous um, election position. Whether that was super, you know, Pentecostally inspired or just just politically inspired, it's difficult to say, but. But certainly, you know, it obviously became a rallying point for some people on on the religious right. You know, but equally, it was, you know, seemed like fodder for Sky News and stuff like that, who don't seem particularly religiously inspired. So, yeah, look, long answer is, I don't know <laughs> exactly where this is coming from. I did actually speak to Sean Kelly, who's Scott Morrison's biographer, once. You know, saying that he doesn't seem to me to be especially have especially Pentecostal values necessarily, um, or, or what viewpoint that, that comes across in his politics. And Sean Kelly really saw it come across in Scott Morrison's sort of relentless optimism, and I can see that. That is that is very Pentecostal. That is very Brian Houston. Brian Houston's personal motto is the best is yet to come, and I think you can kind of see that outlook on life coming out in Scott Morrison, you know, when he visited people or didn't visit people from the bushfires and the floods and it was kind of like, yep, all right, they can get themselves back up, you know, that, that super optimistic get involved with your community, pick yourself up from the ground. That is perhaps where we saw the most Pentecostal flavour in his politics.
2: Well, beyond belief, you look at the impact of Pentecostalism on a global stage and it seems that uh, in other places like Brazil and Nigeria and elsewhere, there are some, it seems, uh, some stronger negative dimensions insofar as um, Pentecostals are driven by a desire to engage in some form of spiritual warfare, which on my reading, seems to um, encourage uh, the kinds of more extreme political expressions that Scott Morrison seems to have avoided in Australia. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about how Pentecostalism plays out in those other territories.
0: Sure. Yeah. So spiritual warfare is 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 a really concerning doctrine that that's coming out. It hasn't really taken hold in Australia. It's it's very prominent. It's talked about in everyday politics in Nigeria, uh, and it's becoming really pot. Popular in, in Latin America and even the United States too. So so it's this idea that demons and spiritual forces are intervening in our everyday lives. Um, so so this is often often uses uh, often seen through things like sickness and and poor personal circumstances that people believe that there's a demon that is you know making them sick. You know they'll often see things like COVID as a spiritual sickness that that your Christianity hasn't been good enough basically, <laughs> or, or that there's some sort of you know perhaps spell that's been cast on you. It might be ancestral. It might be through an area that you live in. There might just be someone who is is casting demons on you and they're they're ruining your lives. What this winds up looking like in practice, uh, especially with the idea of strategic level spiritual warfare, as they call it, where it's can take over areas and institutions. So it might be like the red light district in King's Cross or Las Vegas, but it might also be an institution like the Democratic Party in the US. So it winds up where, you know, political people and, and religious people are saying that, yeah, demons have taken over the Democrats and we got to get them out. And so then what that looks like is, is giving people um, justification to commit violent acts. And, and I have a, a chapter in my book of, of where this happened to an indigenous Mayan faith healer in, in Guatemala who was set on fire by his local community because they believed that he was practicing witchcraft. And uh, yeah, more often than not, when people invoke spiritual warfare, it tends to bring on quite a paranoid view of the world where you start seeing everything that's going wrong around you as as a result of bad demons and spirits and forces that are at work. And it becomes not just a a cosmic struggle. It becomes a sort of battle against good and evil. And when you start talking in those terms, they can turn violent very quickly. And fortunately, a lot of people promoting these worldview. Seem to almost enjoy that, <laughs> or you know, find that it's to some benefit. So, so it's becoming to me quite a violent rejection of non-Pentecostal beliefs. Often in you know um, indigenous practices in indigenous societies, different you know people of Pentecostalized, Pentecostalized and people who haven't butting up against each other. You know, things like traditional sorts of faith healing and and indigenous practices become seen as as a rival to Pentecostals' monopoly on on health <laughs> and and those sorts of things. So. It's becoming a a really awful sort of repackaged form of Christian dominionism. And, you know, it's dehumanizing your opponent is the oldest trick in the book. So it's becoming a really political, politically useful tool in, in societies that, that perhaps aren't very democratic, where there's really bad inequality. There's all sorts of problems in, in terms of obtaining justice and, and basic services and yeah, we're really seeing it start to spring up in some of the places that can least least afford to to have you know new waves of of violence and and division within within their countries and communities.
3: In reading the book, there were more than a few occasions where I I read a paragraph and I had to stop and just go back to the start of it and be like, what did I just read? Uh, one of those was uh, when you're talking about a uh, Pentecostalism in South Africa. And you describe a series of scandals, which included congregations being sprayed with insect killer, fed live snakes and encouraged to masturbate en masse until they reached orgasm. Could
0: you, (laughs) what was going on there? Sure. So, um, Pentecostalism is really big in South Africa, particularly among millennials. And what's really interesting, sort of going back to the political dimension, this is the generation that was let down by 94. You know, they were promised post-apartheid. They were promised a lot. And, And it's mostly within black communities in South Africa. The, that it's popular and has been since Pentecostalism kicks off, really, and so it's becoming um, one uh, one of their prominent um, preachers there called a church of church of the absurd, I think. Sorry, um, church of horror, and it's basically they're being deliberately outrageous because so many people are joining this church as a big, you know, as a, as a straight middle finger to the state that has failed them. So yeah, there's a um, the so Daniel turns petrol into pineapple, so people are, you know, taking shots of petrol at um, a church as like a Eucharist. And there's a guy who's called the Prophet of Doom because that he sprayed Doom brand, like it's like a DDT spray, onto his congregation to to get rid of demons, um, which is spiritual warfare. They thought people getting AIDS, um, it's because they've demons have come into them. It's not, you know, a germ theory or a, a viral theory of, of understanding of understanding health. Yeah, and and Penwell Mguimi. Who who I've who I've met, uh, but not in this manner. He would uh, get people semi naked and stomp around on them. But but yes, and um, a, a friend of mine, Gali, who's a Pentecostal preacher himself in South Africa and a professor, he's been been really chasing it for a few years, and he thinks that it comes back to these social conditions in South Africa post ninety that, four that they're doing this to sort of really create their own faith and create their own communities and create their own parasite institutions, and you know just say. Everything that you told us about democracy and all of this has failed us. Everything, you know, from neoliberal economic reforms to, to just the, the basics of, of coming into the international community. Everything still sucks. So we're just going to go out and do our own thing and, and maybe have a bit of fun and, and maybe just, just operate within the one thing that the only thing left that people actually believe in, which is God. So, so yeah, I think it's such a a fascinating phenomenon and yeah, it's, it's, you know, more and more people are joining these churches and you can also see that I I went to Bashiri, uh, Major One Shepherd Bashiri, who has since fled to Malawi, where he's originally from with billions of dollars, allegedly on the Malawian president's plane, allegedly. I went to one of his open air church services and it wound up being, you know, they go for eight to 12 hours on a Sunday and you wind up realizing that this is, Church was the only place that people could go, black people could go in apartheid en masse to um, to get together. They weren't allowed any other sort of mass coming together because it could, you know, turn into a protest and they vastly outnumbered, you know, the the apartheid state. And you could see just at this thing how much of a celebration it was of, of traditional African cultures. And so that's why the church just has such this stronghold where, you know, states have come and gone, presidents, politicians, promises. They've seen the lot, but the church is the only thing left that they actually believe in.
3: You, you also look at uh, Korea in the book. Uh, South Korea is now the mega church capital of the world. What's the relationship between uh, the South Korean state and these churches, especially since, you know, the South Korean uh, government has, you know, in recent years had Sort of controversies involving uh, the presidents and uh, their relationship with religion
0: sure so um, South Korea Pentecostal faith is uh, is a very right-wing phenomenon so Pyongyang was called Jerusalem of the East they had a huge Pentecostal revival in 1907 and uh, when the the Communists came in and and it and it seemed you know pretty obvious that the country was going to be split in two there was a huge Christian population there the, the largest I think in in Asia potentially. And most of them fled over the border into South Korea so that historically they've been incredibly anti-communist, so sort of akin to um, Cubans in Miami, you know, the ones who got out um, and saw, you know, their, their homeland change, uh, really, really hate the communists. So so there's always been a very right-wing Christian bloc in South Korea. And it was also seen as, as the faith of the liberators. So, you know, historically South Koreans have, you know, have, have a real hatred for Japanese and Chinese because they were colonial powers whereas the Americans came in and and helped to to save them as they see it after World War II. So it's often been a real faith of aspirational middle classes. Uh, A lot of South Koreans um, might even go to church services in English to keep up their English and to show kind of how Americanized they are. So it has a, uh, and so President Rhee, sorry, who I think was the first president of South Korea, who was you know right-wing dictator, he was involved with the Pentecostals. So they've always had a Certainly played a, a very political role, and and they still do to this day. They, you know, there are some leaders who who hold right wing rallies, either out the front of the Blue House, which is the the presidential palace, or the U.S. Embassy every week, rallying the religious right, and they wave American and Israeli flags. So so yeah, it's, it's a really prominent movement there. But there's also more lay people involved. Again, you know, fairly young congregations, upwardly mobile, middle class. And, and one of the, the fast-growing groups within the, the Pentecostal churches in, in South Korea are North Korean refugees, and they basically are, are coming through the Underground Railroad, which is mostly run by Christians. So they either tend to convert because sometimes they're hiding out for a couple of years and only given a Bible, and you may as well read the thing. Or sometimes they're forced to convert because you know Christians are kind of putting their lives on the line. They say, "Well, if you're not going to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I don't know if we can help you." And then sometimes they just kind of have an experience. It's 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 a literal born again moment for for many people as they you know go from one world to another. But the other thing that happens is that when they get to Seoul, I mean, it's such a technologically advanced city. It's such a hard working city. People get there and they feel terribly alienated. You know, they've come from another world. They they speak almost like a Shakespearean dialect of, of Korean, you know, would almost be the equivalent sometimes. They, you know don't have the literacy. They don't have the the degrees. They can only get fairly menial jobs in coffee shops. Even then, you know, a girl I interviewed, she's like, I didn't know what a latte was. And they're often very poorly treated by South Koreans who think that affirmative action programs are giving them unfairly a leg up when they've, you know, studied really hard and worked long hours and all those kind of cliches that you hear against affirmative action programs. So, so they they get to this, this huge city and they feel alienated and sad and an incredible amount of North Korean defectors want to go home. And then the South Korean state won't let them. So if they turn up to churches, however, they're seen as almost totems that the church is doing something right. So these mega churches offer incentives. And and there are a lot of um, North Korean refugees who'll go around to the different churches on Sundays. It's called showing your face. They'll get a stipend because they're considered a blessing, but they kind of have to turn up to like fundraisers and And, you know, a lot of fundraisers with American Korean churches and things like that. And then, you know, if there's a dentist at the church, they'll give them some, you know, a bit of dental care. People will drop some clothes off and things like that to them, some household appliances. So they're kind of getting charity, but then there's, there's a huge split within the community because a lot of them feel ashamed and embarrassed for this. Some of them won't accept that, so it's it's a really sad set of affairs. And there's even a name for it in Korean for what they do, and it, it translates to showing your face. And that's just yeah, basically, in order to survive, you've got to run around and rely on the charity of these churches. So, what for some people helps them navigate their new life, a lot of others is the only way that they can manage their new life uh, in in South Korea.
2: Oh. I guess a more general level, Al, um, you do make reference to the Seven Mountains mandate, which I think I saw reference to in the context of the anti-lockdown movement or on the fringes of it in Australia. It seems to inform some of those engaged in US politics and also outside of it. I was wondering if you could just uh, let listeners know what the Seven Mountain mandate is and, and what its, I guess, relationship to Pentecostalism is as well.
0: Sure. So it's it's quite similar to what I was talking about earlier with spiritual warfare. It's just very Americanized, very radical right America that knows it's lost the the democratic war, war and the the demographic war, I suppose, in the nation. That um, you know, now it's it says that that basically there are seven spheres of influence in in society or seven mountains, and that Christians need to conquer these seven mountains so that Christ can return to Earth. So the mountains are things like government, military, family, business, entertainment, media, and and the big one which is education. So you're seeing a lot of a lot of guys you know storming into school boards with guns and burning copies of Harry Potter and things like that that are inspired by 7M um, as it's often called. And you actually saw quite a lot of guys who stormed the Capitol on um, January 6 um, that they were inspired by this as well. Um, so so a lot of these guys who stormed the Capitol on January 6th were directly inspired by preachers preaching Seven Mountains. We've heard guys such as Charlie Kirk, who's a, a young Republican figurehead. He's got some, one of those campus groups. Um, he's quite well known in the media and did a bit of stuff with Trump. He was talking about conquering these and he's not really religious right. So really pop, propping up the, that radical MAGA right in the US and basically saying, it's basically repackaged Christian dominionism, saying that America is a Christian nation and we've got to take it back for God. And what it's really doing, I think, is speaking to the moment in America where people are isolated, lonely, getting their you know, some of their politics and faith by going down rabbit holes online. You know, we know that, that a lot of the algorithms and social media and stuff like that are really incentivized to push people towards radical, fringe, right-wing ideas. And it's sort of, yeah, they're, they're getting a lot of these through these kind of YouTube and Facebook rabbit holes and it's really encouraging them just as individuals to go out there and do whatever you can. So the famous book that really promoted this that came out in 2013 called Invading Babylon, The Seven Mountain Mandate, has all these things like poverty, you know, it has quotes like poverty is demonic and there's no such thing as secular employment for the believer. So it's really just riling people up and just going to get the hell out there and do whatever you can, take your guns, take back your country, take over your local school board, take over your local council. Um, so so it's often really getting people to operate at their local level and, and that's when you tend to see them, um, yeah, having success and and certainly that that the left side of politics I think is everyone wants to be Obama and give the big speech and be the big national guy, whereas the radical right's really making quite important inroads at local levels just by, you know, virtue of being the only guys there or being the only guys willing to storm the room with their guns, you know. And so, yeah, it's having a real effect. I don't think it's so big in Australia. I just don't think there's the the cultural and Structural incentives here to, to, you know, rile up a base with compulsory voting. And, and I just don't think that kind of Christian nationalism really washes in Australia. But I mean, that said, um, the Gold Coast mayor, their new ad- advisor, uh, has recently been found out to be an adherent, uh, to Seven Mountains mandate and, and putting some pretty wild ideas out there. So I certainly think that some of the more politically minded Pentecostal preachers or, or perhaps social media figures in Australia will latch onto it just by virtue of, you know, we get so much of our culture from America here. And, um, and if, you know, if if you're going to get, if you're seeing the likes growing and, and, and the fundraising and people buying your book or coming to your seminar or whatever, it's going to encourage you to preach it more. So, so I think if it, if there does turn out to be some sort of a market for it here in Australia, um, we certainly might see more of it though. I think it's a fairly fringe idea still.
3: Well, if the bikini meter maids on the Gold Coast start speaking in tongues, we'll know who to blame.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly.
3: Well, El, that's all we've got time for. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, if people want to follow you, you are on Twitter, at El Hardy, nice and easy. And the book is Beyond a Belief and is available in all good bookstores. Thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me.
3: Well, Andy, that's the show. We will catch you next week. See you later. See you then. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another
0: year. Independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep community strong.
3: The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 039419 8377 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR. Keep, Keep community, community strong. strong.
2: It is important to stay up to date with your COVID-19 vaccinations, including your booster dose. Getting a booster means you'll increase your protection against severe disease and continue protecting your loved ones and community against COVID-19. You can get your free COVID-19 booster dose if you received your second dose of a COVID-19 vaccination at least three months ago. To book an appointment, visit australia.gov.au or call 1800 020 080 and select 8 if you need an interpreter. Visit health.gov.au
0: or speak to your doctor to find out when you are eligible. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra a 3CR supporter.